Hello, I'm Bruce Malcolm, and this is Denise Malcolm. We're proud to share with you this podcast series, Keeping Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast by the Daniel Malcolm Foundation. Each episode will feature practical insights on how to teach your child safety in our world today. We will help parents and carers understand and navigate the challenging world of child sexual abuse. What child sexual abuse is, the behaviours and signs to be wary of, and how to respond if you are worried about this with children you know. Our host, Walkley Award-winning journalist Nance Haxon, will talk with survivors, parents, leading researchers and professionals working on the front line in this area to give you the tools and resources you need. It's time for difficult conversations on this hidden topic. This podcast talks openly about child abuse, child sexual abuse, child sexual exploitation and harmful sexual behaviours. We are aware the content raised in this podcast series may be triggering by some listeners. There are links in our show notes for organisations that can support you. Please feel free to take a breather when you need it. Today on Keeping Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast for the Daniel Morcom Foundation, we're going to deep dive into the results of a groundbreaking global study into sexual offending against children, which shows a shocking number of Australian men are sexually attracted to children and teens. Michael Salter is a professor of criminology at the University of New South Wales. He was lead author of this world-first study, conducted by UNSW and Jesuit Social Services. It involved surveying thousands of men across Australia, the UK and the US. The study found that one in six Australian men reported having sexual feelings towards children. And the profile of these men may surprise you, as Michael Salter explains for us on this episode. He hopes the findings shine a light on how to prevent adult men from becoming perpetrators of child sexual abuse. Michael, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on the Keeping Kids Safe podcast for the Daniel Morcom Foundation. Great to be here. Really appreciate it. And to, to speak to you about this absolutely groundbreaking research. This is the largest study of its kind ever undertaken globally, really identifying and understanding child sexual offending behaviour. Can you tell us about that and the attitudes that you uncovered? So, I mean, most of our information about child sexual abuse comes from a couple of sources now, particularly victims. And so we've got decades and decades of these large scale victimization studies where we ask adults in the community whether they've ever been sexually abused as kids. And so that information, it tells us how many survivors there are, what's the risk um, of child sexual abuse in childhood, and also what are victims and survivors' long-term outcomes, what are their needs and so on. So that evidence base is really well developed. In terms of what we know about perpetrators, we know what victims tell us, and that's important. But direct research with perpetrators has really focused on the men that we catch because they are the men we can talk to, the men that get um, charged and convicted and they end up in treatment. Now, those men are a tiny proportion. They're a couple of percent of the men who commit child sex offences and they're not representative. They are the men that we can catch. And by definition, what that means is the men that we don't catch are in a funny way the men that we need to study and yet we can't find them. So what we've done in this survey is we've used an online survey panel company, a company that people sign up to belong to. You know, they get paid a couple of dollars every time they fill out a survey. This 
survey company had a total pool of 1.5 million people. And we asked them for a representative sample of about 2,000 men in Australia. And we've also got samples in the UK and the US. It's completely anonymous. There was no way for us to link a survey response to the person. We asked them a lot of questions, but amongst those questions, we asked them if they have any sexual feelings or interest towards children. And we also asked about sexual behaviours towards children, both offline, so contact offending behaviours, and also online behaviour, including grooming, uh, including um, accessing child sexual abuse material, um, webcamming with the child. So people have done these sorts of online surveys before. Generally, the sample is small or the sample's not representative. It's just anybody that's answered the survey. So this really is the largest and most robust child sexual abuse perpetration prevalence survey ever undertaken. 5,000 men in all, 2,000 men in Australia. It's very clever in that approach of just using like a standard kind of company to go to so it doesn't raise any alarm bells with anybody who's thinking about answering it. They're just going through it like they would with any other survey. Look, this, this survey company, normally they're sending out surveys that ask about whether you like your shampoo to smell like peppermint or chamomile, what brand of toothpaste you prefer. Those are the sorts of surveys they send out. Um, you know, this was a different kind of survey. It was longer. It took 20 to 30 minutes. It, it asked, you know, much more um, intimate questions. So people received a little bit more money by, by filling it out. But they were informed about the nature of the study. And, you know, we have some open text questions um, where people could just write in. They weren't just, you know, selecting multiple choice questions. And actually, a lot of the guys said in the open text boxes, look, you know, this was really hard, but I'm glad you're doing this. I'm really glad that you're doing this research. So that was some of the feedback that we got. Men found it a really difficult survey to fill out. You know, most men are not offenders, of course. Most men don't have sexual feelings towards children, but they really understood why we were asking. So what were the main things that you found? So, I mean, really kind of the headline findings of the study is that about one in six men have sexual feelings towards children and young people, people under the age of 18. And also about 10% of men reported that they'd engaged in sexual behaviour relating to children. So that included about 3% of men that indicated that they'd had sexual contact with someone under the age of 18 when they were over the age of 18. And about 7.5% of adult men indicated that they had engaged in some kind of online offending. So looking at child sexual abuse material, engaging in a sexual conversation with a child or webcamming with the child. And that's really important information. I mean, we found that just under 2% of Australian men had ever engaged in a sexual webcam with a child. I mean, that's one in 50 men. That's really, really concerning. Did those rates surprise you? They do. I think many people would be shocked to hear that this research found that one in six Australian men report having sexual feelings towards children. Was it higher than you expected? Look, I think the public was shocked. We weren't. The Australian Child Maltreatment Study surveyed 8,000 Australians about their experiences of childhood victimisation and it found that about one in four Australians was sexually abused before the age of 18. I mean, somebody's doing the abusing. You know, somebody's doing it and, and the group, the cohort of offenders, it can't be that small just because of the numbers of victims. So 
we do need to wrap our heads around the fact that there's a significant group of men in the community who are sexually harming children and engaging online with illegal child content. What was interesting is that of the, about the 10% of men that reported some sexual offending towards children, just over half reported sexual interest in children, but about half did not. And when we look at, I suppose, the, the statistical profile of those men, the men who have report no sexual interest in children but some offending Demographically, they actually look identical to Australian men, whereas men with sexual feelings towards children who are offending, they were different demographically on a number of factors. They had higher rates of adverse childhood experiences. Um, they were drinking more, more drugs. Their mental health was worse. And so it really signals that some child sex offending is eminently preventable because there's a cohort of perpetrators that are not inherently interested in children who are offending nonetheless. And that strikes us as really sort of low-hanging fruit for prevention. For the around 4.9% of men who have sexual feelings towards children who are offending, that profile was really concerning to us because those men looked to us in the survey like white-collar workers. They were more likely to be married. They were higher income. They had pretty good social supports and social networks. They were almost three times more likely to work with children. So these were men who were not on the margins of society. These were men that externally would be trusted. Um, people would like them. They would present really well. But in our data, they were living double lives. You know, they were using encrypted services online. They were very careful about hiding their tracks online. They really looked to us like kind of a premeditated offender. I think that profile, again, would really surprise people that, like you say, these are middle class, you know, generally white Caucasian men earning good money. It's not really that stereotypical picture that I think many people have of a child abuser. That's, that's absolutely right. Now, our data, and we're not the first people to show this, but when it comes to sexual offending against children, our data suggests a relationship with adverse childhood experiences at the community level. I'm not suggesting for a moment that traumatised men go on to harm children. But what we know is that at a community level and at a society level, the higher the rates of trauma, and adversity for boys, the higher the rates of all criminal activity. Criminal outcomes are higher and crime is higher in communities where boys are being traumatised at higher rates. One of those potential behavioural outcomes is sexual offending against children. And that's been true when we've just looked at the full 5,000 men, we can see almost a dose-dependent relationship the more adversity and trauma in the life of a boy or the more adversity a community visits on its boys, then the higher the rates of child sex offending. And that is not a lesson that I think we should individualise to individual survivors. We need to think about that message to government that says the way we keep children safe is by keeping children safe. You know, we need to protect our kids, but also when children have been harmed, when there's been abuse or neglect or adversity, we have an obligation to support that child to heal and recover. 
we should do that anyway, but when we do that, we're also preventing or reducing the likelihood of these future negative outcomes. In terms of the survey, one of the challenges is how do we sensitise our systems to a cohort of offenders who are actually very good at staying under the radar? And at the moment, you know, our child protection systems and our criminal justice systems are really built in a way that privileges men who present well. Um, And we've had a whole debate, for example, about character references in sentencing and, you know, the right of child sex offenders to ameliorate their sentence by submitting character references. Now, our data says actually these men, part of their modus operandi is they present well and people like them. That's part of their offending pattern. So, you know, rather than every time we catch an offender and he's a quote-unquote nice guy and everyone likes him and he's pretty wealthy and able to afford a good lawyer, and every time we do this, everyone's surprised, you know, how do we adapt our system so that we're, we're used to this and we say this is the type of man that we are accustomed to dealing with and we have the resources in place to manage that because, unfortunately, if you present well and if you've got money and so on, you're in a pretty good position um, relative to men who are not presenting so well, but that good character is part of the offending. So I think there's work for us to do to think through how do we keep those men in scope rather than just letting them fly under the radar, which is what they're doing at the moment. And thinking that they're the exception when clearly they're not. They're the rule. I think it's interesting that you touched on it right at the beginning. So many studies, though, have really focused on, by necessity to a degree, the the victim's experience because it's what the researchers had access to. But this really changes that focus, doesn't it? And onto how do we identify these men who need help with the feelings that they have towards children? what's, What's key to that there? Is that really what this study was trying to get to? We conducted the study in partnership with Stop It Now Australia, which is a small pilot service uh, run by Jesuit Social Services for people who are concerned about their sexual feelings or behaviour towards children. So we partnered with Matt and Georgia from Stop It Now. And that was a really important partnership because what we found was one in three men who has sexual feelings towards children wanted help. You know, they they wanted help. They didn't want to harm children. They were worried about their behaviour. They were worried about their feelings. And they were saying, you know, we, we actually need support around this. And we know anecdotally that sexual feelings towards children typically starts to emerge around puberty for young boys who have this issue. So young boys can be in their early teens, mid-teens, and they become aware that their sexual arousal pattern is abnormal, that they are sexually interested in young kids, or they might find that as they age, their sexual interests do not age. So, you know, at 13, they're interested in 13-year-olds, but all of a sudden they're 23 and they're still interested in 13-year-olds. Now, the issue is that in Australia at the moment, there's really nowhere for that young person to go to talk about those feelings and receive support around managing and reducing their risk. You know, the only way to get treatment for pedophilia is to commit an offence, be sentenced to a period in prison, and you can receive treatment in prison. So Stop It Now is really trying to change that. 
And the Commonwealth Government has gone public with a tender to fund that service. But, you know, the, the tender process is still underway. And in the meantime, you know, this is a group of men in the community who do pose a risk to kids and we just are not offering them an alternative. What do you think is is key to helping that conversation in Australia to to help people who have these feelings, mainly men, uh, towards children? How do we help them before offending occurs? Are we afraid of talking about this? Is there still just that deep, uncomfortable feeling for most Australians about this? Look, yeah, I mean, child sexual abuse is a topic that makes people uncomfortable for all sorts of reasons. You know, lots of people are survivors and they're just trying to cope and get through life and they don't necessarily want to talk about child sexual abuse for lots of reasons. People can also be uncomfortable because, you know, they might be a perpetrator or they might be uncomfortable with the feelings that they have towards children. So there's lots of reasons for silence. But this is a topic we need to have an open, honest conversation with the community about. We need to acknowledge that some people do have these feelings and there's somewhere to go. And that's such an important line of delineation for, you know, for me, if you've got these feelings and you want help, great. You know, you're putting your hand out. Let's take that opportunity. You know, my issue is with the men who don't want help. You know, they are, they're our problem and we need to come down on them. So as I'm concerned, like a ton of bricks, but if they want to take the right path, then we absolutely, you know, need to be there for them. What sort of early intervention would work for those men who can identify that? Where could they go? So Stop It Now provides both a a website and a phone line. Um, It's a much better established service in the United Kingdom. It's very successful. It's hugely subscribed. And it's about connecting with the men and the boys where they are. That includes on pornography sites and um, you know, overseas and to an extent here in Australia where um, pornography sites are detecting that people are searching for child content, they can actually refer them. They can say, this is illegal, you need to contact Stop It Now. I think we need to broaden that. Um, We found an association between offending against children and consuming more deviant and forceful pornography, pornography with violence, pornography with animals that was closely associated with offending against children. So I think there's I think we need to broaden that intervention. We also know that family and friends of child sex offenders, they might not know about the sexual behavior towards children, but particularly intimate partners, they're often aware of really excessive pornography consumption. And they can be aware that their male partner is looking at material that's raising red flags for them. And, you know, we also have Partner Speak, which supports the non-offending partners of men who look at child sexual abuse material. But we also need a broader support service for non-offending family and friends because often they are the canary in the coal mine that's saying, he's doing something online that I am really worried about, but I don't have proof or evidence. I don't know what to do. And we should also respect the serious conundrum that a non-offending partner or family member is in if they do come across inappropriate content on someone's computer. That's a huge shock. And it's, you know, we would all like to believe that we would all instantly just pick up the phone and go to the police, but there's huge ramifications for this and people need a support service. Now, at the moment, that's partner speak, but they're massively underfunded, you know, there's been a total failure of government to come to the party here around 
putting the investment and the money where it needs to be for these support services. So I think there's a number of touch points. Something that we found which was really concerning was 4.5% of Australian men indicated they had intentionally looked at child sexual abuse material while they were a teenager. And so we have teenage boys who are intentionally looking at child sexual abuse material, probably out of curiosity, you know, probably out of, oh, what's this? What's the dark web? You know, these sorts of things. Now, we're, we're in schools, we've got respectful relationships, we've got some pornography education that we do with young people, but I think we're missing a trick here, which is, you know, we've actually got a large cohort of teenage boys who are looking at really serious and illegal content, and we need to be aware of that and fold that into our education, and we need to think about what are the pathways for that teenage boy what are the pathways we can give him to kind of address what he's seen and maybe some of the online communities that he's got engaged in? Because we talk a lot about teenage boys and, you know, Andrew Tate and Jordan Peterson and, you know, they're getting radicalised by, you know, the men's rights activists. Well, I've got concerns about teenage boys being radicalised by pedophiles online because if they're looking at child sexual abuse material, they're probably doing it on a forum where they are interacting with child sex offenders, we need to take that pretty seriously. Is pedophilia actually increasing or is it just that much easier to access child abuse material online now? It's useful to think about sexual interest in children on a bit of a spectrum, whereby some men have the capacity to be sexually interested in children, but they have broader normative sexual interests that they can happily engage in that are totally non-illegal. And then that spectrum goes right up to a pedophile whose only sexual interest is in prepubescent children. They don't have any other normative sexual interests. So there's sort of a spectrum here. What the internet does is it allows men who are on that spectrum, who might be further down away from the extremes of that spectrum, to realise that they have some sexual interest in children and then to pursue that sexual interest. I don't think that many of the men, so in total we had, you know, between I think 6 to 7% of men who in their lifetime had looked at child sexual abuse material, I don't think that all of those men were pedophiles. I think a lot of those men ended up there because they could be there because the internet is such a, it's an environment with so few guardrails, but there's a real concern there that the internet is, uh, I suppose, enlivening men to sexual behavior towards children who I think otherwise would have been out there in the community and really unaware of those proclivities for men who are, they have a pedophilic disorder, we have no evidence that pedophilia, so a pedophilic disorder, is increasing in prevalence. We have no evidence of that, which is really great news. Unfortunately, for those men who do have a pedophilic disorder, the internet is a playground for them. It is. It allows them to offend at levels that 25 years ago were unimaginable And it allows them to harm far more children than would have been possible 25 or 30 years ago. So the internet is really acting as a force amplifier for men who are pedophiles, but it is also acting to normalise sexual interest in children. 
And because I think part of the problem too, I imagine being online, is that you could almost remove yourself from that and think that it's almost a victimless crime. Would that be right? I think that is certainly the view of, you know, that is the attitude of people who view child sexual abuse material. We we asked a number of questions about offender attitudes in the survey and really what struck us was that for men who were abusing children, whether it was online or offline, they didn't believe that child sexual abuse was harmful. They didn't believe it was harmful. Um, so in a sense, there's, you know, they don't have any need to sort of blame the child for the abuse or try and grapple with responsibility because from their point of view, there's no harm in child sexual abuse. When I've done work on the dark web and I've done quite a lot of research on the dark web, particularly with men who are trading in child sexual abuse material, I can tell you they absolutely believe that the child is consenting to the abuse and that the child is consenting to the recording of the abuse. Um, and what we see is a lot of pretty deranged fantasy amongst these men that the child would be really pleased that they were, or, or would be really pleased that they were viewing viewing the material. So that's really the level of delusion and pedophilic fantasy that's there in the online pedophile community. And that's a real concern because we see we see men coming into those communities sometimes. We see teenage boys coming into those communities and getting acculturated into this attitude in which child sexual abuse is not harmful. So it sounds like for a significant cohort of people, it's that they don't understand the long-term impacts of child sexual abuse. Does that really need to be better communicated in society somehow, like a, a public health campaign? Or what do you think is needed? I think that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, when we think about the prevention of domestic violence or sexual assault, we target the social norms and attitudes that legitimise violent and coercive behaviour. But we've been pretty timid with child sexual abuse. And the fact is, is that the men who are at risk of acting on these feelings or impulses are likely to be men who don't see anything wrong with it. and we really need to reinforce to the community and we really need to be clear to the community, child sexual abuse injures children. Now, that's a sensitive message. We've got a lot of survivors out there, survivors who have gone, you know, on a journey where they are living healthy and happy lives. We don't want to suggest that people are damaged for life by child sexual abuse, but we shouldn't sugarcoat it. You know, the reason why child sexual abuse is illegal is, yes, it's immoral, but also it is very damaging to children. It is statistically one of the worst things that can happen to you as as a child. That's just a fact. And there is a group of people who don't believe that and they are disproportionately offenders. You mentioned before you've done a lot of work with survivors of child sexual abuse and trying to remove some of this some of this worst abuse material from those online spaces. That must be incredibly difficult. Can you tell us a bit about that? So over the last couple of years, we've been doing research with some of the survivors of the most highly traded images and videos in the world. And these are now young women who are, and I know that this sounds like a ridiculous thing to say, but their level of fame amongst these group of offenders, they are effectively celebrities. There are millions upon millions upon millions of men who have 
seen their images and videos, who, you know, in some cases know their names, um, who try and find them, who stalk them online. And what's particularly egregious about this is some of this content's been circulating for 20 years and it is now more available and more proliferate online than it was 20 years ago. And, and I say that because it's not just a measure of offender activity and how quickly offenders are distributing this material, but it, it just brings into focus how grossly negligent internet service providers have been and how frankly complicit governments have been that for these young women, images and videos of them being raped at the age of five or six have been circulating for 20 years and they deal with that every single day, every day they live their life under the shadow of this content. It means that they're never able to just move on. They're never able to just heal. It's never post-traumatic stress disorder. And that's what they say. There's no post-traumatic stress disorder because there's no post. You know, there's a community of offenders who are clustering around this, this content. We've done fine-grained analysis. Where is their material? Who's got it? Where is it sitting online? And most of the time it is sitting on services that are lawful. These are legal companies, legal organisations who allow this material to just sit there in a massive cache. And in some cases, these companies are selling access to that material. That is how the material is distributed. People think it's all on the dark web. Or on Pornhub or something like that. That's right. The, The links to the material are on the dark web. The actual content for the most part is sitting on the clear web in legal organisations who choose not to screen their own service, although the technology exists. They could screen their service, identify the material, take the material down and report the people who uploaded it to the authorities. They choose not to do that. And under the law, they don't have to at the moment. And so interesting that you say this because I think so often the the emphasis comes back to, oh, the parents just have to be better with, <laughs> you know, protecting their kids. But really, it's you're pointing to a grand failure of regulation and not even just nationally, but internationally. Look, the fact is, unfortunately, you know, tech companies are not domiciled for the most part in Australia. They do not have to comply with Australian law. Pornography in Australia is at all pornography is denied classification. If you're an internet service provider, if you're a hosting provider and your infrastructure is in Australia, you can't have any adult content on your infrastructure, right? It's actually not lawful in Australia. So we don't have very much in the way of child sexual abuse material hosted in Australia because there's no adult content. Unfortunately, overseas, it's just been an absolute free for all. And really the responsibility for that lies in Washington and it lies in the very poor legal structures that the United States put in place in the mid to late nineties around the technology sector. And although we're now seeing movement in Washington in the right direction, we're seeing movement in the European Union, legislators who want to regulate big tech are now facing a multi-billion dollar industry behemoth that is putting tens of millions of dollars into lobbying and into AstroTurf campaign in order to stop these bills from, from passing. And so it really is a monster of the government's making, but it's children that are paying paying the price. Is it mostly women survivors that you work with? 
Uh, women and and men, and certainly we've done, you know, I've done research with male survivors of, of CSAM and we have a number of um, male survivors who are also um, activists and advocates um, who are really speaking for men and boys who are impacted by, by this uh, offence. Um, the majority of CSAM is of girls, 80% is of girls, but about 20% is of, is of boys. And it's a very, very active uh, community of offenders who cluster around the abuse of boys. And, you know, they've had 25 years on the internet to develop their own cultures and their own movements. And some of the work I'm doing this year in particular is to try and push back on some of the ways that these online pedophile communities are finding points of influence into academia and into the policy debate. So some of these online pedophile communities that are actively arguing that the reason why, you know, they're not seeking help and the reason why they offend is because they're so stigmatised and they're so discriminated against and they're actually an oppressed sexual minority. And these are the sorts of arguments that pedophile groups have made for about 50 years. But unfortunately, over the last five years, we've seen some of those arguments starting to bleed into academic literature. We're seeing academics who are starting to recruit research participants for interview by distributing information about their studies to these pedophile networks. Now, I'm not against speaking to them. I'm not against, you know, even interviewing them, but we need to understand that if we're recruiting members of pro-pedophile social movements and we're interviewing them, they are going to be feeding back their sort of pro-pedophile speaking points to us in, in interview and I think there's been quite a bit of naivety around that uh, over the last five years, particularly for academics who are using terms like minor attracted person. And that's been a kind of a label that has entered the academic literature through, I think, these spheres of influence with um, pro-pedophile groups. They do have an agenda. And in fact, we've had an organised pro-pedophile movement for 50 or 60 years and in the same way that men's rights activists try and influence public policy around domestic violence, for example, pro-pedophile movements try and influence policy around child sexual abuse. So for parents and carers who are listening to this, how do we respond? What's your advice for better prevention? It sounds like it's got to be a multi-layered kind of approach. Look, it does need to be multi-layered and we need to be clear that, you know, as a country, we have an obligation to our children. The burden can't fall on parents, just on parents. And some kids, frankly, their parents are the offenders or their parents are absent or, you know, they're in care and they don't necessarily have kind of a proactive caregiver. So parents are important allies in keeping kids safe, of course, but I don't want to... Uh, put all of the burden on parents because, frankly, you can have the most protective parents in the world and some kids will still be abused. At the same time, the protective factors are really about that open, trusting relationship with kids. It is about appropriate sex education with children and sex ed's become, you know, really controversial over the last couple of years. It's really been and really politicised, hasn't it? Been very politicised. And I have to say, you know, 
if you might be uncomfortable talking to your children about sex and you might be uncomfortable with sex ed in primary school or high school, but the people who are not uncomfortable talking to your children about sex are sex offenders. They will happily talk to your children about sex if you don't, frankly. Um, we know that sex education is part of keeping kids safe. But the other piece is also kids need to know that if something goes wrong, that there is someone in their corner. Kids get really worried about getting into trouble, frankly, and that is a real trap for sex offenders because they often lure and groom kids into a point where kids feel like they are responsible, they feel like they've done something wrong and it's their fault, and the offender will tell them that. And the offender will say, you know, your parent or whomever, you're going to get into so much trouble. Now, we need to get ahead of that by saying to kids, look, if something like that happens, tell me. Like, And we can say, like, I'm on your team, I'm on your side. I might be shocked. I might be upset because I don't want bad things to happen to you. But we will solve that problem together. You know, we will work on that together. So I think that's a really important message. You know, I've, I've been involved in cases where there's been disclosures to parents and I've got to be honest, their behaviour's been disgusting. You know, they're a nude image of their 14-year-old daughters circulated online and the parent's like, well, she's a slut. I want nothing to do with her. Or it might be a same-sex attracted teenage boy who, again, has been groomed and manipulated online, but his parents are homophobic. That's why he's not going to tell them what's happened online. And so... You know, we can be part of the solution, but we can also be a part of the problem. That was a great script that you had before. I think we should go over that again. I thought that was really useful. So just being able, being ready, having that open relationship where you can communicate openly with your child. Yeah, look, absolutely. It comes down to trust because also we can't wrap kids in cotton wool until they're 18, you know in a developmentally appropriate way, they need to go into the world and they need to take risks. One of the things we need to be clear about is at the moment, the internet is incredibly unsafe. It just is. It just is unsafe. That's not the fault of parents. It's not the fault of kids. It's the fault of the tech sector. And government is also responsible for that. It is not a safe environment. And that's also a conversation we need to be open about with young people. And is it also a bit about talking with your children, if you can, but about appropriate sexual behaviour for their age, for their development? Absolutely. And look, that's easier said than done. You know, for a lot of parents, nobody had that conversation with them when they were kids, so they don't necessarily know how to have it with their kids. So it's not it's not easy. Not everyone's got the ability to talk in an open way about sex. But as I said, it is part of giving keeping kids safe and it and kids have the right to know, frankly, about that aspect of their life, you know, that aspect of being a human being. Sexuality is part of the package. And they are going to find out about it. And at the moment, if we're not their source of information, then they're getting it from their peers and they're getting it from porn. Let's be honest, those are the two places they're getting from and unfortunately for some kids, they're getting their sex education from, from a pedophile. So, you know, if we leave kids ignorant because we're uncomfortable, people can take advantage of that. 
Oh, Michael, thank you so much for what you've told us today. It's just, it's so interesting the way that you've explained it and just taking a more dispassionate approach in a way, taking some of the heat out of this argument because like you say there are a lot of different power plays and agendas and uh, that we we need to recognize as well now look kids come first and i get really frustrated when child sexual abuse gets politicized because there is not enough activity practical activity to keep kids safe and support them after they've been hurt and then all of this fire and heat and smoke goes on around child sexual abuse that is of no benefit whatsoever to children and it's all about adults and our hang-ups and our obsessions and our politics and as far as I'm concerned kids come first and I'm not interested in the rest of it. <laughs> That's my attitude. How do you keep going with this sort of difficult work? It's, uh, how did you get involved to, to, in, to begin with? Look, I mean, like a lot of people, I came into the field because I know survivors, you know. I know what a struggle it is. I mean, I'm in my mid-40s now. For family and friends who were victimised, they were looking for help in the 90s and there was nothing. You know, there was no health services. Frankly, police were pretty useless. Sorry for any law enforcement colleagues that are listening, but, you know, this was 20, 25 years ago. There was so much work to do. And so, you know, over the course of my career, I've really seen a lot of progress and we're in a much better position now than we were at the start of my career but it's not good enough we've got a long way to go that sounds like a perfect place to end michael thank you again for joining us on the keeping kids safe podcast for the daniel morcom foundation absolute pleasure and that's the end of this episode of keeping kids safe a bright futures podcast by the daniel morcom foundation make sure you go to the links in our show notes for resources and support. Remember, parents and carers, you've got this. You can subscribe to this podcast on your favourite podcast provider and give us a like on your socials. And if you found this helpful, please share far and wide and rate and review it too so more people can find us. Even if it's just telling a friend about this podcast, that's great. We want to empower as many parents and carers as possible each and every episode. You can support the work of the Daniel Morcom Foundation by visiting our website and donating or call us for more information on 1300 326 435. Thank you for never forgetting, Daniel. You guys are very much part of the solution. Please complete the survey. Thank you for listening. Talk to you again next episode.